Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Jordan Thigpen. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Connection Church. We are continuing, or sorry, we are picking up in a series called To Be Continued. We, uh, we uh, Eric kind of closed out the series last week, and we are picking back up in To Be Continued. So we've been in the book of Acts. We're still in the book of Acts. And this is a really, this is a really compelling theme in the life of the book of Acts. So when we started to be continued, kind of felt like, okay, wow, this message of Jesus, this story of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, it doesn't end with Jesus ascending to heaven. It continues. It's to be continued by the apostles, by the disciples in the early church. But now as we're getting to the end of the book of Acts, the story is still to be continued. And it's interesting. This is always something I found so interesting about the book of Acts, is that it just kind of ends. Paul just is in a house and he's making some disciples and people are coming in and out and there's not like the punchline that you think would be there for it. And so I I mentioned that and we'll get there. We're gonna be in Acts 26 today. But I mentioned that because everything that Paul is doing right now in my mind is incredibly important. Like the stuff that we're doing right now in the book of Acts, whatever Paul is doing is extremely important. And so we're going to look at that today. I want to try to, to the best of my ability, to get us all kind of in the same boat. I want us to feel like as we look through uh, this chapter, as we think through some things this morning, I want us to feel like we're in the same boat together as a people. Because I think if we get there, we can all begin moving sort of in the same direction. And, and I think that Acts 26 highlights something for us is that we all have a common struggle. We all have a common struggle. And I want you to bear with me because this is going to sound real theological or philosophical or real kind of heady. And I'm, it's not. I promise you, this is going to be as practical of a thing as I can leave you with today. It, in fact, it's so practical. We start living in light of this right now. This has the power to change things has the power to change your life, has the power to change my life, and not just once, but in an, in an ongoing way. But here's our struggle. This is the struggle that we all find ourselves in. We struggle to live in light of the reality of the resurrection. We struggle to live in light of the reality of the resurrection. So true or false, right now, if there was a dead person center of our auditorium right now, and that dead person stood up, started walking around, true or false, that changes your day? True. Some of us are just going to sprint out, right? Like, whoa, what's going on here? I'm I'm out. I'm out. I don't know what's going on here. I'm I'm gone. That changed your day. Or why? Like, what happened? How did this happen? Was he actually dead? You're going to have some questions. That just changed your day. What you wanted for lunch, what you're doing later this afternoon, Cancel the plans, clear the calendar. Dead guy just got up, started walking around. The truth of the resurrection of that moment just changed your day. And do we understand that that's what we believe about Jesus? That we believe he was a real person, he was God in the flesh, and he rose from the dead, and he just started walking around. We struggle to live in light of the reality of that truth. And here's our challenge. What we experience 
moment by moment, feels, it feels so much more real than the resurrection. It feels, and I get it, every moment, it feels this enemy standing in front of me, whatever it is, like whatever that thing is, it's just, it's just, pulling at us, these moments as they're happening feel so much more real than the power of the resurrection. But what I wanna put us in the same boat with is that we struggle with that, but those moments are not as real as the resurrection. Think about it this way. So let's say something crazy just happened right now. Like, let's say somebody just charges the stage. They come running at me, and they run up on the stage. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to fake, fake jab. I'm going to fake jab at the throat. And as when they blink, I'm going double thumbs to eye socket. I'm, and I'm, and I'm going to do the best to find the back of their head. And, I, and you'd be like, man, that's crazy. Like, why? why? And, and I, my, you've entered a contract with me now. Like, you've charged the stage. I'm going to do my best to apprehend you, and I'm going to hold you here until one of our security law enforcement officers come, and they drag you away. And when the news reporters come and they ask, like, what were you thinking? You're going to be like, man, it was crazy. I just, I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I didn't mean that. So was that, was that moment, a moment of making a bad decision, is that more real than the resurrection? I would say no. There, how, many, how many things happen in our lives and they're just crazy? They, they, they just happen. They're just moments that, that come in us and they make us feel such a burden, like nothing could exist outside of this moment. But what I want to encourage us with is that the resurrection not only has the power to redefine that moment, it has the power to change how we handle those moments. Listen, I get it. The coworker that just works your nerve, the kid that's just pulling on your shirt like, mom, 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 mom. That one was for my wife. That, that family member that just has the drama, that just has the thing going on, maybe even more seriously, the sickness that just won't go away, the disease that just lingers, and on and on and on. Those things feel more powerful in the moment. And this has been my prayer this week, that some of us today, that we would that we would be set free from being prisoners of each moment. That we would be set free from feeling like a prisoner to the things that are happening in front of us. I truly believe that God gives us this example in Acts 26 to show us, uh, to show us what feels unconquerable in the moment is nothing compared to what he has done for us through the power of the resurrection. Through the power of of the resurrection. So check this out. I was listening to a podcast or I was watching something and they were talking about, oh, I know what it was. It was the movie Warrior. Anybody? UFC movie. The guy's a chemistry 
or he's a physics professor, physics high school teacher, and he's talking about force equals mass times acceleration. And he's talking about, listen, I was a creative writing major. I basically majored in a hobby. I'm not a science person, but stick with me for the sake of my illustration here, okay? Force equals mass times acceleration. And it got me thinking about this idea of power and the, you guys know the formula for power in physics. Power equals work divided by elapsed time, or the little delta thing, shout out to Steve Stewart for the little delta symbol. Uh, power equals work divided by elapsed time. So in baseball, right, the power of a swing, right, is the work of swinging the bat to meet the ball based on the elapsed amount of time, how, how much that work goes into. And by the way, work is force times velocity, right? I love Seth's nodding his head over here for me because he knows I know nothing about physics. And so all of these things are coming together, that mass times acceleration, the acceleration of the bat to hit the ball is gonna tell us how much power is in that swing. Now, so what is the power of the resurrection? Well, it depends on what the work is that is done. The power of the resurrection is this. The work that Jesus did is he rose from the dead. He secured forgiveness of sin for all who believe. He perfectly secures justice for that sin, extinguishing the judgment that was due that sin. He secures our eternity with God an inheritance that we didn't earn. That is the work of the resurrection. And the elapsed amount of time, whatever it is, three days rises from the grave, guess what? No one else has done it. So basically, the power of the resurrection is limitless. The power of the resurrection is limitless. So what does that look like for you and me today. Maybe you're here and you say, Jordan, I get it. I get it. The resurrection, I believed in this thing my whole life. I get it. Dead man raising from the grave. Sounds awesome. But what does that have to do with me today? And this is what I'd say is the places that we have not. So basically the question is we're trying to, trying to identify this common struggle for us all, right? Not living in light of the resurrection. Where does that show up in your life and my life? Here's the question I would challenge you to ask yourself and it's something that I feel like God's been challenging me with. What is on your never list? What is on your never list? What are those things that you have stored up in your heart that you believe God could never do that? Oh, God could never change that situation. Oh, God, God could never provide for this need. Oh, God could, God could never use me to do that. And here's what I would challenge us with, is that each of those things that are on that list, we are believing that those have more power than the resurrection of the dead. We are believing that those things have more power and we are allowing them to have more power in our lives than the truth of the resurrection. And here's the next question that we've got to ask ourselves. As we think about this common struggle that we all have living in light of the resurrection, 
Does God address it in his word in any way? Is there a way that he helps us solve this problem in his word? And I think that's what gets us to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. I'm going to cover the whole chapter today. I'm not going to read it sequentially. I'm going to talk about it in this kind of a way. We're going to talk about Paul's problem. Is it comparable to ours? We're going to talk about Paul's solution to that problem. We're going to talk about why Paul chose the solution that he chose. And then we're going to talk about our opportunity. So that's the roadmap I'm going to provide for us. So to catch us up, kind of picking up on where Eric uh, preached last week, Uh, And we're John the week before. We're in Acts 26. And this is, again, another situation where Paul is on trial. Paul is standing before uh, another courtroom scene. We're going to look at some of the characters. Uh, I'm going to highlight two just real quick. Agrippa would have been, he's a figurehead. He is a figurehead ruler. He would have been a Jewish figurehead ruler. We understand at this time that Israel is under occupation by Rome. And so the Roman authority is a guy named Festus. In chapter 25, that authority was handed from Felix to a guy named Festus. And Festus is, sounds like a guy off the Andy Griffith show, if we're being honest. But the, that is who is currently ruling in Israel with Roman authority. And he brings in a guy named Agrippa to hear Paul's case. So what is Paul's problem? What, what problems can we pick up on from this? Verse, verse 6 here in chapter 26, we see that Paul is on trial. He, he says this, And now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Another problem that Paul has, the prosecution team is corrupt. Verse 21 says this, For this reason... The Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. For this this hope, Paul is proclaiming this hope of the resurrection of the dead. And in him just simply going about talking about this resurrection of Jesus, the Jews not only seize him in the temple, they try to kill him. Verses, uh, chapter 25, 2 and 3 sheds some light on this as well. It says this, then the chief priests And the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they, him being Festus, they appealed to Festus, asking him to do them a favor against Paul, that he might summon Paul to Jerusalem. They were preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. The prosecution team is corrupt. This is a huge problem for Paul, right? Like, They're trying to abort justice and kill Paul at whatever cost, legally or illegally. What a problem. What what outstanding opposition is this that Paul is facing? And then 30 30 through 32 in chapter 26 tell us this, that not only is he on trial, which would have been a problem, not only is the prosecution team corrupt, the courtroom is corrupt. So the king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man is doing nothing that deserves death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. How does that tell us that the courtroom is corrupt? Let let me tell you something. If you know 
that a person should walk free because they have done nothing worthy of prosecution and you choose to prosecute them anyway and pass the buck, that is corruption. Listen, let me tell you something. You want me to tell you what Caesar, the guy that's ruling the entire Roman Empire, is not worried about? Paul in Caesarea. He's not worried about that. So Agrippa knowingly passes the buck instead of doing what he knows he should do, which is help set this guy free. He says, hmm, he appealed to Caesar. Hands off. So Paul is facing an incredible problem. He's on trial. The prosecution team is corrupt. The courtroom is corrupt. And I think this is where we really, we need, to, we need to really think carefully about ourselves today. In the deepest part of your heart, what would you do if you were in Paul's shoes? Cards stacked against you. All opposition against you. Everything is lined up for Paul to feel as if he is going through, what he is going through is more real than the resurrection of Jesus. Everything would point to the fact that this is as real as real gets. So as we look at what Paul's solution is to this problem, we need to consider why. So let's look at Paul's solution. Paul's solution. Paul's first solution, fearless honesty about the resurrection. Fearless honesty about the, about the resurrection. Verse six says this, and now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. Because of this hope, I am being accused by the Jews, O king. That's what I love about Paul. To the day that Paul died, he was a Jew. And he, he, he was appealing to a Jewish leader. It's like, this is what my own people are doing to me. This is our, this, Agrippa, this is our nation. This, and we're banking on the same hope that the original 12 tribes of Israel and basically the deepest roots of our ancestry, this is what my hope is in, Agrippa. And he says this, this is an incredible statement. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why is it considered incredible by us today that God would raise the dead? In fact, I myself suppose it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the dead. Sorry, into the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Of, of Nazareth. Verses 21 through 23 also share this with us about this solution. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. Since I have attained help that comes from God, to this day I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's solution in the court case of his life is the resurrection is true. The resurrection is true. And this is the hope that we've all been waiting for. Uh, now, now standing uh, on trial, now as a character witness, uh, Paul, would you like to testify about yourself? Yeah, okay, what do you have to say, Paul? The resurrection is true. Solution number one, 
fearless honesty about the resurrection. Fearless honesty about his story. Paul's solution number two. I love this about Paul. Paul is saying like, hey, I'm I'm not trying to hide anything about this. This is my story. And I love, he, he draws in the courtroom into his experience. He says, all the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. He's saying, I'm not trying to be a Jewish outsider. I'm not trying to, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I, you, can, you can look back through the history and see I'm as Jewish as Jewish gets. I, as far as a religious person, elite. I'm a Pharisee. From it, that his, he has spent his whole career building up this testimony of himself, and the only thing that changed that story was the resurrection. He's fearless about his story. Then 10 through 18, so what changed this for you, Paul? This persecution, this I actually did, verse 10, I actually did in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison. Since I had received authority for that from the chief priests, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. All right, sweet, on trial, Paul's copying the murder, sweet. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them, being greatly enraged at them. I even pursued them to foreign cities. In other words, in the middle of this trial, Paul is saying, I get it. I get why they're so angry with me. In fact, I used to try to persecute everybody like me. So what changed? Verse 12, under these circumstances, I was traveling to Damascus with authority and a commission from the chief priests. At midday, while on the road, O king, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. When we had fallen to the ground, when we, everybody with me, had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. But I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of things that you have seen and of things in which I will, I will appear to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Court solution, court strategy number two, fearless honesty about his story. Fearless honesty in sharing the gospel in the court case of his life. Solution number three, fearless pursuit of his mission. I love this about Paul. Something changed in Paul's life on the road to Damascus. Something changed in his heart towards Jesus and going from there's no way that this guy is the Messiah to this guy is definitely the Messiah. And I'm gonna tell the world about it. And what was just so crazy to me is that his circumstance did not dictate to him about his honesty about the resurrection. He was fearless in proclaiming to the Jewish leader of their day and the Roman leader of their day. And standing there, this is, this is a question I've, I've been kicking around a lot regarding this. And the question is, why does he appeal to Caesar? Why not take your chances in Jerusalem? 
why, why do that? Like he's, he's, he's sharp, right? Paul is sharp in arguing his legal case. And in the middle of it, he just appeals to Caesar. I think Paul knew that the promise of Jesus's resurrection, it was better for him to stay on the mission of getting to Rome and proclaiming the gospel. So beginning of the book of Acts, right? You will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Paul is happy to be in chains if it means participating in the mission of God than it is to pursue his own freedom. That just hits me in my, in my, in my stomach when I think about that, that being a slave to Christ for Paul was better than freedom and purposelessness. So Paul's solution in the middle of the fight of his life, in the middle of his problem, fearless honesty about the resurrection, fearless honesty about his story, fearless pursuit of the mission. Verses 24 through 29 are really something, man. As he was making his defense this way, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters. It is to him I am actually speaking boldly. For I'm not convinced that any of these things escape his notice since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe Then Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to be a Christian so easily? He says, I wish before God that whether easy or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. Why? Why does Paul choose this moment to be fearlessly fearlessly honest about the things that are of the utmost importance to us as as people of faith, to us as followers of Jesus, why? I think it's because of Paul's salvation. I think it's because of Paul's salvation. Verses 12 through 16 uh, share with us this scene on the Damascus Road, right, where he sees this bright light. But what is incredible that we have to remember is that Paul saw the face of Jesus, He heard the voice of Jesus, and that was enough to change everything for Paul. Jesus tells him, I have appointed you as a servant and a witness. And when you are participating in the thing that Jesus has called you to, there is is nothing, there is nothing as sweet as participating in that. There is nothing as powerful as moving into the things that are the closest to the heart of God and doing the things that he has called you to do. That is where the power is. That is where the peace is. Not in the moment-by-moment circumstances. I think that we struggle to live in light of the resurrection because the enemies that we face from moment to moment feel so much bigger than the hero that came out of the grave. I think we see these enemies and we grow fearful. They seem so big. They seem so unconquerable. But friends, listen, if you are here today and you have placed faith in Christ for salvation from sin, you've already experienced exactly what Paul has experienced. 
You are saying as a follower of Jesus that, yeah, I, I believe in the resurrection of, of Jesus and that when he came out of the grave, that he promised me a resurrection, that I will be with him. You've already heard the voice of Jesus saying to you, you are mine. Here's what Paul said regarding his salvation. I think this is really incredible. And it's really fitting too, because we're going to look at Philippians 3. This is a letter that Paul wrote to, uh, to Philippi as a prison epistle. It's a letter that he wrote while in prison. This is what he says, verse 7. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Here's his goal. I love this. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. How can you feel so confident in death, Paul? Assuming or knowing that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Jesus didn't just secure for us his resurrection, he secured for us our resurrection, that we would be with him, that death is defeated, that we don't have to fear that finality that we can live fearlessly in pursuit of Christ's mission because we have forever. And this is, my, my, this is what I would have us consider. Maybe that power, maybe that identity feels so foreign to us today because that's not what we signed up for. Maybe, maybe your story is one that I've just always believed. I've just always been a Christian. It's just something my parents were, my grandparents were, and on and on and on. And that power feels so foreign because you have forgotten what team it is that you signed up for. So speaking of crazy things that could happen, let's just imagine, right, like talking about things you didn't sign up for. Let's say I take the football, right, and I set it down in the middle of the stage, I start taping some stuff off, and I'm like, I need two volunteers, Oklahoma drill right now. You know what the Oklahoma drill is, right? Like person lays down over here, person lays down over there. One of them gets the ball. The only goal is that those two people destroy one another. And I can't see any other fundamental reason to do that other than that. And so let's say Oklahoma drill right now, church service, 9 a.m. Sunday morning, Oklahoma drill. You would be like, nah, I'm not doing that. Why? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you commit to the Oklahoma drill right now? Because it's not what you signed up for. It's like, I came to church. I came, I wore my somewhat Sunday best to come and to worship, to hear preaching, to sing. That's what I signed up for. And you would be right. You didn't sign up for the Oklahoma drill this morning. So why does living in light of the resurrection seem like such a struggle? Maybe it's because we forgot what we as followers of Jesus signed up for. We signed up like Paul to be conformed to his death 
assuming that we will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Our goal is to know Christ deeply, personally, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Today, Acts 26 reminds us what it is that we signed up for in following Christ. And Paul says it perfectly in Philippians 3. And for for those of us who are in Christ, we know the sweetness of these verses. Not, Not fully, but certainly in part. We know the sweetness of those moments where, God, I just... I just, I want to be with you. I want to talk to you. I want to hear your voice. We know the the sweetness of pursuing the mission of God and seeing him do things that we can't explain, things that only he could account for. But if you're here today and you can't escape that feeling of fear while living day to day, I want you to know that you're not alone in that. If it's, if it's, anxiety that's just pulling at you, if it's fear that's just pulling at you, if it's people in your life that are just pulling at you, I want you to know that you're not alone. This is something that we are continuing to grow in as followers of Jesus. And um, just share kind of a personal story with you. I am not good at coming up with sermon illustrations. Like I, I'm, I'm just in general not very good at sermon writing. And it's something that kind of like I've had three weeks to prepare for this. And it's, you know, I've, even up until the like ninth hour, I'm still kind of worried about it. Um, but as I was, I, I, I've been trying to think really hard, how can I make this incredibly practical for us? And I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it. And I just heard God whispered, not in an audible way, but like just in a way that I'll never forget. He said, stop worrying about trying to make preaching look like your strength. Be honest about your own weaknesses and let me be your strength. And that's really hit me that I, I, I want to do a good job. I want to teach God's word effectively and, and in, a, in a helpful way. But God's powers made perfect in our weaknesses. So the thing that I felt led to share, this is something that's been on my never list, is actually this bat that I used as an illustration earlier. Uh, on the bat, it, uh, it's got my name and our, you know, this was something that our coach gave us our senior year of high school. It's got some, some stats and our season and different things like that. And uh, it's something that I keep in my office as a reminder of who I no longer am. Because this bat for most of my life has been an object of shame for me. It's been an object of insecurity uh, for me. Um, I, I struggle to this day to let go of certain insecurities about myself. Um, and, and it happened this week. It happened this week for me, right? Like, uh, the whole, uh, there was part of the week I was like, why couldn't this happen like a month ago? Why is this, of course, the week that I'm going to preach on freedom through the resurrection, of course, this is what I'm going to struggle with. And as I, as I thought about it, as I was going through it, um, and this, this, is, this, is, this is what bothers me, right? So we have a softball game, and I do not very good, had bad softball game. And I get home and I'm talking to my wife and, and softball is just one of those things that reminds me of, I, I was not a good high school baseball player. I mean, I could throw, sure. I could run, sure. But something, putting it together, it was the fear. I had such 
insecurity of not being good enough and constantly not going to be accepted because I transferred in as a freshman, new high school, bigger high school, and I was scared. And every, I'd get in the box and I would just tremble. I was more afraid of looking like an idiot than I wanted to hit the ball. And it's an insecurity that's always sat with me. And every time I pick up a baseball bat, every time I look at this stupid piece of wood, I'm reminded of that insecurity. And this week, playing softball, same thing. I felt that insecurity welling up in me, this this thing that used to be such a part of my identity. I felt it welling up in me, and I struggled to let that go. And, And you know what bothers me? It's that it bothers me is what bothers me, right? Like, it's not the fact that I did well. It's that this stupid bat and stupid softball games bother me. It's like, you should be beyond this. But it was a moment, if you're like me, if you're still growing out of your fears, if you're still growing out of your insecurities, this sermon is for you. Because just this week, it was a moment where the Lord had to remind me, you're not insecure, you're not that same insecure kid that you were in high school. Those, that insecurity does not define you. Who you are in me defines you. I can let go of those fears and I can pursue the mission of God. I can pursue the things that he's calling me to and I can pursue the relationships in my life without feeling like that insecurity is just always gonna be there. And you know what? I used to think that, God, you'll never take away this insecurity. You'll never take away this fear. So what is on your never list this morning? What is on your never list? What would it look like today to surrender just a little bit more of your never list? What would it look like to just give him a little bit more of the things that you think he could never change? Is it your marriage? God could never salvage this thing. This thing is finished. Or God could never save me from this abuse. God can never save me from this monster. I've just got to endure it the rest of my life. God wants to set you free this morning. Is it your career? I could never do something different. I'm always going to have to work like this. Is it your hobbies? What's on your never list this morning that you need to surrender? Our opportunity today is to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus. That's our application. That's our application. The most practical thing you could do to change your life today is live in light of the resurrection of Jesus and live in light of the the hope that we will be raised with him. Paul was set free to fearlessly pursue the mission of God, and so can you and I. Here's three areas that I commonly see we as followers of Jesus store up a never in our hearts. We store up nevers in these things, and just to try to make this as practical as I can, I see us store up nevers in our heart regarding prayer, regarding ministry, and regarding relationships. And I think this covers a couple of different uh, different things for us. With prayer, we store it this never in our heart, like, ah, I'll never be able to pray like them. I, you know, oh, God, I, can't, I can never pray 
for more than 15, 30 minutes. God could never just sit and listen for your voice. And what we, we won't say it out loud, but what we silently feel is like, God, I could do more good for you through my to-do list than my prayer list. We store up a never in our heart, and we never say it out loud to anybody else, but deep down in our hearts, we store up a never. God, you could never change this part of me. I felt it this week too. I was, I was sitting in a time of prayer. A book I'm reading encourages this silent prayer, just sitting for an extended period of time and just listening for the voice of God. Me and Macy sat down to do this together. And uh, as I was sitting there, I just felt this pull. I, my, my mind would wander. My mind would drift. I would think about, I need to do this. What are the kids doing? This and that. And I felt in that moment, which is the point of the exercise, of course, and God shows up like he says he would. And uh, he says, what would change in your prayer life if you prayed in light of the fact that me and you have forever? All the, all the worry, all the hurry, all the anxiety, all the pressure to get up and just do more, just get more done, clean up more stuff, do more stuff. God was just like, just sit here with me. We've got forever, buddy. Me and you. And it was so freeing in that moment. God could change that never for you today. Ministry, we look around and we think, well, uh, you know, God could never use me to do that. God could never use me to accomplish this or that. Ministry, I want to remind us and encourage us that ministry is simply kicking up dust in service to the king. Doesn't have to be fancy, doesn't have to be super formal. It's what, what the king has called you to do in moving in the direction of that thing. The king has said, come and I will make you fishers of men. The dust we are called to kick up, it's my encouragement to you, always has the good of someone else in mind and always points that someone to Christ. And a lot of times we, we go from, okay, yeah, so Ephesians 4.12, like, Equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we as all as saints are called to the work of ministry, but not that one. God could never use me to do that one. And the obvious example, of course, is like overseas missions, right? Like, oh, God could never use me outside of America. God could never use me over there. Or on the other end of the spectrum. We disqualify ourselves from certain ministries because of wrong beliefs that we have about ourselves. It's like, ah, oh, I'm just not a people person. Oh, I just get nervous, right? These are all things that we experience. Oh, can I tell you? I used to never think that I could stand up here and preach. And the joy of it was Christ setting me free from my perception of me. Number three, we, we, we store up nevers in our lives regarding relationships. And we all have different capacity for relationships. We all have different ability to relate to a certain num a number of people. But here's what I can promise, is that God has never called anyone to isolation. He's never called as a, being a part of the people of God. He's never given an exception, like, except for this one. They're called to be by themselves. There's never been like, Okay, the people of God, well, except for these folks, they don't have to make disciples. They, they can just kind of do their thing. 
kind of roll in, enjoy the sermon, roll home, see you next Sunday, and not have any impact in the lives of people. God has never written an exception clause to make disciples. He's also, this is what's tricky about the application of this, is that he's also not called you to keep yourself so busy with uh, with prayer or ministry or relationships that you distract yourselves from the other ones. I've, I've seen this in, uh, in a church I was at previously. We had uh, some folks that would serve as deacons and they would keep their hands so busy with the stuff of ministry that they never had to deal with what was going on in their heart. You can keep yourself so busy in quote-unquote ministry stuff that you just never enjoy the person that called you into ministry in the first place. Maybe kind of in closing today, real simple application from this. Maybe this isn't something that you add to your to-do list. Maybe this is just something that you leave today and you find 15 minutes of complete silence and you just sit and ask yourself, how does my, how does my soul respond to having to just sit before the Savior that I claim to worship? Maybe you just sit and say, what? Maybe you, just, maybe you just sit down, you just have a seat, and you say, Jesus, I realize when I pray that I talk a lot. What do you want to say? Maybe you just open yourself up to Jesus, what do you want to tell me? And you just sit and listen. And if you don't hear anything in particular, that's okay. Maybe Jesus just wanted to be with you and just you be in his presence. Is that enough? Is that enough in our Christianity? Is that enough in our faith to just be with the Savior who gave his life for us? Maybe it's just to sit and ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you think is on my never list? What if I added to my never list that I've said, you can't have access to this, Jesus? And write down what he tells you. Write down what he reveals to you. Here's what I trust. I trust that I don't have to do all the application for you, that the Holy Spirit is living in you as a follower of Jesus and that he will speak to you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the power of your resurrection. God, thank you for setting us free. God, thank you that we don't have to live in bondage to our personality in bondage to what the world thinks of us. We don't have to be in bondage to who we used to be. God, we are free in you. So God, this morning I pray for all of us that we would be set free to fearlessly be honest about the resurrection, to fearlessly be honest about uh, the kingdom of God, about the gospel, that we would be fearlessly honest about our story, God, and that you would begin to show us how we can participate in your story. God, show us how your story changes our story. God, a, a, a dead man got up and started walking around. And we look to that, that man who was dead and is now alive as our Savior. We are counting on Christ to be exactly who he claimed to be. So God, set us free to follow that Savior wherever he would lead. God, I pray for all of us today. Lord, that we would hear your voice, that we would get somewhere and just be able to hear from you. God, that we wouldn't, uh, that we wouldn't beat ourselves down, that we wouldn't try to 
define who we are in Christ, that we would take on who you have defined us to be in Christ. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.